0: Good morning to everyone here and virtually. So we're spending the summer in the book of Mark. We're looking at these stories that Mark has told throughout his gospel. They are, as Todd told us in the first sermon in the series, pictures of Jesus. Pictures that tell us about God, about Jesus, about man, about us. In that first week, the picture told of the purpose of God. Our faith is rooted in the past. Our faith is grounded in Jesus's work. In the second week, the picture was of the testimony of God himself upon Jesus. God delights in Jesus. And Todd asks you, since God sees Jesus when he sees you, do you believe that God delights in you? And last week, the picture was of Jesus's authority, authority to drive out Satan's kingdom and authority to declare God's kingdom. So today, the picture that Mark provides us will reveal, first, that faith involves right action and a right heart, and second, it will reveal Jesus' claim to forgive sins. Now, before I get to our text and the two topics, I want to touch briefly on this term that Jesus has used to describe himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. And this is the first time in Mark that Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, but As we're going to see as we go through the next chapters, he says it more because it's actually his favorite self-description. Not only that, but in the gospel accounts, nobody else ever calls Jesus the son of man. The only place in all of the scripture that anybody else calls Jesus the son of man is Stephen at his martyrdom. When he is giving his testimony before the Jewish leaders, he says, I see the son of man in the heavens. Nowhere else. In lots of places and by others, Jesus is called Christ or or Messiah. In places and by others and by himself, Jesus is called Lord. But only he calls himself the Son of Man. What would his listeners have thought he was trying to convey with this self-description? What does he mean by this? Now, in the day, his listeners would have known about the use of the term in the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, it really just mainly means man. Or humanity. But in the book of Daniel, the term son of man begins to have an eschatological meaning. A meaning looking forward to the end of time. The son of man is the one who is to bring the kingdom of God to the afflicted saints on earth. And given the healings that Jesus was doing, this title would have been consistent with that. The kingdom of God was in their midst. And so Jesus' is use of the term. But Jesus has more meaning than that for the term Son of Man. Not only bringing the kingdom of God, but he also talks about the Son of Man in eschatological glory. That is the glory at the end of time. Not just bringing the kingdom, but the glory in the presence of God and all the saints. And he adds other meaning to that. The Son of Man, he says, is to serve. The Son of Man, he tells his disciples, must suffer and die. Why doesn't Jesus ever call himself Messiah or Christ, for that matter? When his disciples declare that he is, why does he tell them to be quiet and tell no one? Well, it's the it's because the Jews believed that Messiah was to come, and when he came, he would take power and drive out all the enemies of the Jews and lead them to earthly glory, and there had been to earthly glory as in the time of King David. And there had been others in Jewish history around Jesus' time who had led revolts, thinking they could drive out the Romans and set up that kingdom and they would be Messiah. So if Jesus called himself Messiah, it was likely that the Jews would have swept him up and tried to get him to lead a revolt against the the Romans. And the actions of the people on Palm Sunday, if you think about it, those actions really reveal that this strongly would have been the case if he had allowed that to happen. Jesus did bring the kingdom the kingdom of God, to earth. But it is not what the Jews expected. So Jesus calls himself Son of Man and not Messiah. It doesn't mean that he didn't realize he was the Messiah or Christ. It just meant that he didn't want it proclaimed at that time. As I've said, we're going to see other opportunities to see how Jesus uses this term, Son of Man, over the coming weeks. But let's turn to our text today. It sets an absolutely remarkable stage. Jesus has been traveling through Galilee... And returns to Capernaum. In the just the first chapter. I went back through the first chapter of Mark. And I was totally amazed at all that Jesus has already done. It's just amazing what he's already just done. He's been baptized and the spirit has descended upon him. His teaching in the synagogue is described as amazing and with authority. He has exercised a demon. He has healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. He has healed, in the words of verse 34, many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. He has healed a leper. All in one chapter. By all these actions, needless to say, he's becoming very well known. And today, he is said to be at home. Many commentators, and probably most commentators, think this was Peter's home. But a few commentators actually think it might have been Jesus' home that he returned to. And when, when he tells the paralytic, I forgive you for digging a hole in my roof, maybe that's got more meaning than we realize but there is this other person, there's this huge crowd around listening and, and watching and, and just seeing what's going on. And- but there's this other person we've already seen in our story. This other person who needs healing, a paralyzed person who has four friends who will stop at nothing to help them get him in front of Jesus to be healed. Not even this huge crowd that's in the way. And they conclude there's only one way in, and that's through the roof. Now, roofs of peasant homes in that day were, were flat-topped. And they would have had uh, logs across them or beams. And they would have been covered with smaller poles and and sticks. And then there would have been mud. uh, Or, sorry, there would have been thatch. And then there would have been mud. All right? And then Luke tells us there were tiles as well. And so that's why it said they had to dig through the roof to get to them. All right? Because it's just full of dirt. All right? So they start digging and cutting through the roof. Now, I, I want you to imagine you're Jesus. You're sitting here talking to all these people. And there's this noise, and debris, and mud, and dirt, and sticks, and sawdust, and and all this stuff's coming down. What a mess, and what a distraction that would have been. But finally, they're successful, and they slowly lower their friend to the floor in front of Jesus. And I can imagine, just imagine, you know, this hole's being dug, and then all of a sudden, this body's coming down. So Jesus kind of pauses and looks up, and, and I'm sure he just was amazed at their... Uh, Effort and their persistence. And in verse 5 it says, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now before we get to that staggering statement, your sins are forgiven, I want to reflect a little bit on what it means that Jesus, seeing their faith, what is it that Jesus saw that moved him to speak these words and to later on heal the paralytic? Now, the obvious thing that Jesus saw was the effort of all five people involved. You might think, well, there's only four given an effort. I hold that for a minute because it's, it's true. The efforts of the four friends is obvious enough. Did I mention it was probably hot and they were sweating a lot and that was dripping down among all? It was, it was probably a really disgusting time. And you might be thinking the paralytic didn't do much here. Really? Who had the most faith here? Those doing the work, or he who had to trust his friends to get them up a narrow set of steps, to dig a hole, and to lower him safely into the room, where one mistake would drop him to further injury and possibly death. I'd say that the faith of all four, of all five, are included here, and they all included some type of action. The four were digging, and the fifth was trusting. They all had to do something to get this man in front of Jesus. But if you reflect on it for a minute, their their actions can't be the sole reason that Jesus saw their faith. Otherwise, he would have had to say to others of those present that their sins were forgiven. Doubtless, many of them had traveled long distances, endured much to see and hear Jesus and possibly be healed. Why didn't Jesus proclaim that their sins were forgiven? If it's actions that save them. We see a hint, actually, a couple of verses later in verse 8. In verses 6 and 7, the scribes are described as sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But verse 8, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? So Jesus, just as he does a few moments later with the scribes, undoubtedly is seeing the heart of the paralytic. Yes, he sees the action of him trusting his four friends. Yes, he sees the action of the four friends. But he also sees his heart. A heart that, unlike the hearts of the scribes, acknowledges who Jesus is, recognizes his sin and desires to turn from it, is convinced that Jesus can heal him and desires to be healed by him, both physically and spiritually. Jesus sees that kind of heart in the paralytic. And Jesus heals the most important thing first, his soul, by the forgiveness of his sins. So faith, you see, saving faith is a right heart and a right action. The heart has to recognize the truth that we are all sinful and broken, that only in and through Jesus can we find forgiveness and wholeness, and that we have to desire to turn from sin. We've already had a some discussion today about repentance or some comments about repentance from Michael. We have this desire to to turn from sin. That's called repentance to forgiveness and wholeness. And then the will has to act on the truth that we believe in our heart. That act of the will is trust. Just as the paralytic friends had to trust Jesus, just as the paralytic had to trust his friends in Jesus, so we also, as we come to Jesus, must put our personal trust in Jesus and trust that he can do what he says he can do. And like that paralytic and his four friends, we can't let anything get in our way. Now, if you're here today in person or or virtually, and you've not exercised saving faith, if you've not recognized the truths of scripture, if you have recognized those truths and have not acted on them, then I implore you to consider Jesus as the one who can save you from your sins. And I implore you to put your trust in him. But many of us are already followers of Jesus, who at some point in life have already come to that saving faith. But we have to admit, we don't always keep living that way. We're not always living with that heart of belief and that right action of trust. I have to admit that lots of times I don't live that way. I have been, and I suspect suspect all of us have been through times of doubt, perhaps even intense doubt. When the truths that we must believe about ourselves and about Jesus and about God just don't seem true or adequate. And let me say to you, if you have been in that position, it's okay. Doubt is not bad. It's not bad at all. More commonly for me, though, is that I will have all the right truths in my heart. I can say them all. I can believe them all. But my actions betray that I don't always trust Jesus. Too often I live in idolatry and fear. Idolatry when I try to find meaning from good things that should not be ultimate things, things like comfort, control, experiences, knowledge, and then fear. I fear failure, I fear shame. When I was younger, I used to actually have a fear of death. Fortunately, as I've gotten older, I got a little less of that. But what I really fear is disruption to my comfort. And boy, have I been scared lately, if that's what I'm scared of. These are times in which my faith's been shaken because my faith's not always where it should be. So certainly there are times in which one's faith can be shaken. Amidst the pandemic, amidst the death and sickness, amidst the economic turmoil, is our faith in God adequate? that and amidst our racial brokenness amidst the cultural systematic betrayal of african americans and other people of color is our faith in god adequate what do we do when we realize that our hearts aren't right and we doubt or what do we do when we realize our actions are showing that lack of trust in jesus we should do what we always do we should do what we did when we first came to jesus and what we should always do Come to Jesus and admit our sin, express our right heart of belief, express our right action of trust, and he will forgive you. He will forgive me. So that brings us to these spectacular and unexpected words to the paralytic. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, let's start with this unexpected part before we get to the spectacular part. Jesus has been healing and casting out demons all throughout Galilee. These four have brought their friend before Jesus. Um, Imagine their expectation. We did it. He's there. He's safe. We didn't drop him. Everything's good. He's going to get healed. Son, your sins are forgiven. You think they were disappointed right at first? You think they were kind of surprised? I mean, I would have been. I would have been, what are you talking about? That's not the expected thing, you know, Heal him. I suspect they were disappointed. And although the paralytic was probably surprised, I bet he wasn't quite as disappointed. Because I suspect his heart was right, as we said earlier. He was hoping for physical healing, but he was sorrowful for sin and yearning for forgiveness and right relationship with God. And that's what he got first. And then moments later, of course, to confirm Jesus' authority to forgive sins, Jesus says, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, said that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And that brings us to consider the spectacular part. One might think, That the healing of the paralyzed man and watching him walk out of there is the spectacular part. But it's not. As I've said, Jesus has been healing people all through Galilee. That's kind of what everybody would have been expecting. The spectacular part is that Jesus pronounces that that his sins are forgiven and he claims authority to do so. Verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. Now, before we talk about the the reaction of the scribes, there are a couple of quick things I want to point out. First, this is the only time in the Gospels in which sin and infirmity are actually linked together. And and one should be careful not to make uh, that mean that you think illness is due to sin because that's not the case. Perhaps it was the case in this person's life. We, we don't know, all right? But we can't generalize to others from this specific case. Secondly, and I think most interestingly to me, because I, I just didn't know, know this, this is the only time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus explicitly states he's forgiving sin. In fact, there's only a, a few places in all the Gospels in which Jesus explicitly takes on the authority to forgive sin. He does it uh, in Luke 7, where the sinful woman is Wetting his feet with her tears, using her hair to wipe them and anointing his feet with perfume. He tells her, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. John 8 is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus tells her, I do not condemn you either. Go for now and sin no more. So it's, it's not real common for Jesus to uh, claim that authority. But he does here. And, of course, the reaction of the scribes point to the spectacular nature of this event and claim. And, frankly, their reaction is quite appropriate. It really is. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming only who can forgive sins but God alone. Indeed, only God can ultimately forgive sins. And in his words, Jesus is claiming to be God. And if he is not God, then this is blasphemy. Recognize that the term son of man, nowhere in the Old Testament use of the son of man that Jesus calls himself, is it said that the son of man will claim authority to forgive sins. Recognize that although Jesus is called Christ and Messiah by his followers, nowhere in the Jewish and Old Testament understanding of Messiah is the idea of the authority to forgive sins. This is a radical claim. He is claiming plainly for all to see an authority that only God has. He's claiming To be God. Now. That claim could lead us. To spend more time. Pondering some really deep theological things. Like the dual nature of Jesus. Both God and man. Or or even pondering the nature of God. The three in one. But we don't have time for either of those today. So we'll just suffice it to say. Then that Mark is giving us here. A picture. A glimpse of this dual nature. Fully God and fully man. And that. Is pretty spectacular. As I conclude today, I want to remind us all who would follow Jesus that we have to come to a point of saving faith just like the paralytic. With right heart, understanding the truth of the gospel, and with right action, turning to trust in Jesus. As I noted, we will, all of us who have done this will fail at times to continue to live in this saving faith. Our hearts will doubt, our actions will betray us. And I want to remind you that Jesus stands ready to say to you, as he did to the paralytic, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. Earlier, though, I asked, in the midst of the pandemic and in the midst of the racial turmoil, is our faith in God adequate? And the answer to that lies not in the consideration of how adequate our faith is, But it lies in a consideration of how adequate God is. God is the sovereign God of history. Many times in Old Testament and New Testament biblical history, it has looked to the people of God like God was not in control. But he was. And today he is. And often God has used periods of turmoil, whether societal or personal, To bring his people into closer relationship with himself and with one another. I believe we're living in such a time. With the pandemic, we have suddenly had more time on our hands. And many of us have realized that those idols that were distracting us are not able to distract us so easily anymore. And that gets kind of uncomfortable. And we've had to deal with that. And that's been good. Uncomfortable, but good. We have learned that we have to be more intentional about connecting with one another because we're not seeing each other as much. And and that intentionality alone has brought deeper and more fruitful relationships. And with the racial turmoil, we've had to begin to confront the systematic racism that underlies our history and our present. For African Americans, this confrontation is their experience. And for those of us who are white, I think many, possibly most of us, are just beginning to understand that. And although this is going to unfold in different ways for each one of us, we all have to come to terms with this and figure out, together as the people of God, of all colors, how to listen, learn, admit our errors, be empathetic, and support and love one another and our world around us as we move forward in faith toward reconciliation without fear. It will take a great faith, but we have a great God. Amen.